Last night we discussed living an authentic life as God created us to live with authentic relationships of love and trust with the ability to love because we have been loved and to trust because God is trustworthy. And with that, we examined the creation stories against other stories that were current in the times in which the creation stories were written, particularly the creation stories of Babylon. And we noted some important differences. I won't go over those differences uh, for tonight. If you want to be able to get last night's message, please see me afterwards and I'll give you a website you can go to to get that. It may not be up right away, but I'll give it about a week. Tonight, we're going to talk about our descent out of reality, the reality that God created us to have and to live, into a new world. I have titled this topic for tonight, The Fraud. Because what the serpent did to us is lead us away from reality to our virtual reality that he created. One with lies. One that diverted us from cause and effect, orderly reality, to that which I choose to term magic. We don't talk about magic very much. Uh, that's a taboo topic, really, in our world. Western world is very uh, against magic. But that's where we're going to head. And uh, we're going to look at the fall of Adam and Eve as introducing this virtual or alter reality that took the three models of creation, the nature, the natural law, family, love, respect, nurture, and development, Sabbath, equality, and a host of other meanings that I don't have time to go over. We're going to look at how the fall introduced and an alter reality to those three models. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to Genesis 3, verses 1 to 5, we'll be looking at these verses and uh, following what the serpent said. It says at the beginning, the serpent was crafty. It's interesting how a text you've read many, many times can suddenly evoke new meaning when you read another text at the same time, that is, that was written at the, near, near the same time or maybe, maybe centuries and millennia before, but was a familiar text or at least the ideas were familiar in the world in which the Bible writers lived. And you see something totally different. The serpent was crafty. There is a Mesopotamian deity named Inki or Ea who was also crafty. In fact, there's a book written about him called Inky the Crafty God. He was a god of magic. In his conversation with the woman, the serpent will review a new lens through which to reveal reality. And again, I call that magic. He said to the woman, Has God said... In reality, God didn't just say. He commanded. It says it right in the text. The Lord God commanded the man, saying. Now, a command is an unequivocal statement. It's clear. It's usually precise. And usually to the point. We think of it as prescriptive law. Prescriptive law prescribes what we ought to do. And we think of it as prescriptive law, where in a command, I tell you what I want you to do. In the naive innocence of their creation, something that some of us talked about last night in the Q&A, Adam and Eve needed this prescription for their own safety. So in a sense, while it was commanded, it acted as a warning. It's something like telling a small child, do not run in front of cars. 
I'll digress for a story. Everybody likes stories. I remember one time in class I was trying to explain some of the things that happened in the Old Testament seemed to us so stern and, and command-oriented. And I was explaining how uh, God had to use that those measures in order to get us to realize that we should, in order to keep us safe, really, in order to protect us. And one of my students came up to me and she said, I've got to tell you a story. When I was three years old, she said, I loved to run in front of cars. My parents did everything they could think of. They gave me time out. They lectured me. They told me how bad it was to run in front of cars. Nothing worked. She said, one day, they spanked me. She looked at me with solemn, big eyes, and she said, I never ran in front of a car again. So this command is something that seems prescriptive and is needed to protect Adam and Eve. But I would like to suggest that for God who commanded the natural elements into order, a command stems from creative empowerment. You think about how he created the heavens and the earth. He spoke and it was done, says the psalmist. He commanded and it stood fast. His commands created. His commands had power to empower things to respond. You think of Jesus on Galilee. Uh, he's sound asleep in the boat and the storm erupts as they are given to do. And he awakes and he says, peace be still. And at his command, the waves stop and the wind dies down. So in a sense, when God commands something, it is a statement of his reality, the reality he created for us to enjoy. But the serpent twists this into something unclear, perhaps even secret. After all, he's caught this woman alone. Well, maybe she really wasn't alone. The text says the man was with her. But he's apparently caught her attention more than he's caught the man, and he's going to use this to try to gain an aid and, and gain the ability to get everybody involved. Now, I want to talk about secrecy in ancient Mesopotamia. In Babylonia, only certain officers of the king had privy to royal secrets. Any counselor who divulged the king's plans was a traitor. One Babylonian story tells how the god of magic, Inki, revealed a secret of the god Enlil to the Noah figure through a devious means. The story goes like this. Atrahasis was the man that Inki decided to forewarn about the flood that was coming. And instead of going to Atrahasis directly and speaking to him directly, he went to Atrahasis' reed hut where he was sleeping at night And he spoke to the reed hut, Oh, reed hut, listen to me. A flood is coming, and what you need to do is dismantle the reed hut, and you need to make a boat. Says this all to the reed hut. And Atrahasis wakes up and goes, Oh, I think I've been told by the gods that I'm supposed to build a boat. This thing of secrecy. And and to me, this is possibly the backdrop of this story. Painting the serpent as something like a Babylonian deity to arrest the reader's mind that this this is something to be on the alert about, something to be warned about. Don't get sucked in to this Babylonian serpent. In this moves on further to talk about a very key element of secrecy and that was trying to assess what the gods had written in the entrails of sheep or in the heavenly bodies so that you could foretell the future. It's called divination. The div- diviners wanted to know what the gods had said. 
So when the serpent says, has God said, he's tapping into this long history of wanting to know what the gods have said. Now, presumably Eve knew what God had said. Presumably the man told her, Adam told her. The Babylonians wanted to know what was their fate. You see, the gods fated everything, including death. Or by me, I should say, especially death. Fated everything. They set fates. That is your destiny. What was going to be your fate. To die actually was worded to go to one's fate. The Babylonians believed they had little choice. And that was the whole thing about fates, is that the Babylonians had no choice. But God had already made his plan clear to Adam. He had let him know that to eat of the tree inhabited by the serpent was to die. He was very clear about that. And unlike the Babylonian gods, he gave the first man and woman choice. They could choose their fate. Babylonia, you couldn't choose your fate. You couldn't, you couldn't determine anything for yourself. You could negotiate with the gods. You could try to get them to change their minds once they stipulated something. See, the, the omens that they read in the entrails of sheep and in the, in the signs of the heavens were not just fates. They were verdicts of divine punishment or reward. But with God, Adam and Eve could decide their fate. They could decide the verdict of their lives. So the serpent's first secret message undermines what God actually said in exaggeration. And we move now to the next part. Has God said that you may not eat of any tree in the garden? Is that, what does that mean? You can't eat of any tree of the garden. You have no tree you can eat of, right? You can't eat of any tree of the garden. So he exaggerates what God has said. God has plainly said, you may eat of all the trees of the garden, but you may not eat of this one tree. Do not eat it, because in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. The implied messages of these, in other words, we're dealing with secrecy here, and so what is actually said is not as important and significant as what is implied. The implied messages are that God is restrictive, arbitrary, and harsh. You can only eat from seed plants, not from trees. See how arbitrary and harsh he is, even though God hasn't really said that. So Eve is quick to correct him. God only told us not to eat of this one tree lest we die. The serpent then proclaims, you will not surely die. In the Hebrew, this is eloquently a direct negation of what God has said. In the Hebrew, when God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. The part you shall surely die is not dying, you will die. Is, is dying, you will die. The serpent changes that to negation, not dying, you will die. It's a direct negation of what God has said. The implied message? What are the implied messages? No consequences. No consequences. What else? God's lying to you. God's lying to you. And by, by extension, if he's lied to you, what does that imply? What else has he withheld from you? Or... He's not trustworthy. Yeah. He's not trustworthy. He's hiding something? He's hiding something. And what else is it? <laughs> well, he's not for you. No, he's certainly not. 
selfish. So the serpent continues. God knows implied what you know you what you don't know but I do. You see the secrecy is at work. God knows what you know, don't know but what I do. That in the day that you eat of this tree you will become like God knowing good and evil. Implied messages God is restrictive. He's trying to withhold something that would make you like him because he is to use what Bruce just said, he is selfish and unwilling to share his wisdom with you. And secondly, God knows good and he knows evil. So let's unpack the serpent's implied messages and their results. He implies that God is arbitrary, rigid, restrictive, harsh, selfish, one who knows good and evil, an untrustworthy liar. That's a long list. He claims that God denies the man and woman what he gave by right of creation, likeness to God. We talked about that a little bit last night. God created us to be like God. They already were like God. They were in his image. And then he comes along and says, you want to be like God, implying you aren't. Does it imply that God's afraid of them and their potential as well? It could. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, by the way, an ongoing battle in, my, in, in uh, ancient Mesopotamia. I talked about last night, for those of you who weren't there, that uh, the gods created human beings to be their slaves. That was the only reason for their existence, is to be slaves of the gods. And in slavery, the master becomes so dependent on his slaves that he can't do without them. And a very comical work, the dialogue of pessimism, has a, is a dialogue between a master and his slave about what he will or will not do. And in the end... It's very clear that the master can't live without the slave. And the slave says, the master offers uh, or wants to find out what will happen when he dies. And he decides to send the slave first to find out. And the slave will say, ends by saying, but the master will not survive me by three days. There's uh, other stories that illustrate this inability. For example, in both uh, Atrahasis and Gilgamesh, the Epic of Gilgamesh, after the flood, when the Babylonian Noah offers his sacrifices, the gods buzz around the sacrifices like flies. They're so hungry, they're so famished, because nobody brought them any food offerings while the flood was going on. So, that's a very plausible point. So, so implying that God is like that slave-holding deity and he doesn't want you to break out and just was reading some of Abraham uh, a biography of Abraham Lincoln and of course the whole slave-holding business in the U.S. had very similar overtones. Mm -hmm. We we won't have any economic welfare if, if the slaves go. Yes. So the serpent implies that God knows both good and evil. What does that imply? Does God know merely about evil? Or does he experientially know evil by doing evil? How does God know evil? Is God evil as well as good? And the Babylonians conflated these two together very very succinctly you had good demons and you had bad demons you had good gods and you had bad gods so the realm of divinity and the supernatural you had good and evil all mixed up together but this comes from the serpent in Genesis I would like to suggest to what extent God knows evil will hang in the earthly air until Jesus dies on the cross. And even today, 
we still wrestle with that when we raise the question of God and human suffering. I teach that course twice a year to students who really, really wrestle with the questions. We have have a course called God and Human Suffering. We had it when you were in at PUC, Bruce. I missed it somehow. I think you did. Is it an elective? It would have been an elective. That's why he missed it. We have such a heavy major that uh, he had to stick to mostly major classes. Now, here's a very important aspect of this whole process of sending us from the reality God created to the reality that the serpent is trying to create, the virtual reality. The serpent infers that the fruit on the tree of knowledge has power to make them enter a new dimension, magic. How is that? Well, since when does a fruit enable a person to become like God? Have you had that happen to you? Well, it depends, I suppose, on what you ingest. Yeah. And, and, and what you take to mean God-like state of being, but yes. They just legalize mushrooms. It's, that's true. Psychedelic drugs. But in ancient Near Eastern understanding, they didn't, I don't know how quickly they discovered that. To them, the fruit of that tree had some kind of magical power to make them like God. So I, I did a little research today. I, I've been struggling. I actually have a whole book on magic in, in the Bible. And scholars have wrestled with, should we call miracles ret magic? If you think of magic as something supernatural, it's not something inherently possible. It is a deception, but it is a little more than that. Because the people who believe in magic believe it has actual power. They believe it as a reality all its own. We see it as a deception, but they don't. So uh, here's a, a definition for you. The magic is a category into which we have placed various beliefs and practices considered separate from both religion and science. So magic isn't really religious and it really isn't science. And yet the way the ancients treated it, it's part of both. In the ancient Near East, magic was associated with witchcraft. So we're right in line where the serpent is trying to lead the woman, aren't we? If we understand the serpent to be the medium of Satan, we're right in line with where he's trying to lead. Even, even Satan manifesting himself as a serpent could be considered magic. Exactly. A magical beast that mm-hmm. can do things that, that can't magic. Can eat this fruit and, and can talk and can read her mind. That whole process is taking place. That's right. So by stating the consequences of listening to his lies and eating of the fruit were not death but divinity, the serpent tore down the first creation model of intrinsic cause and effect and substituted magic and magical power. And we need to have this clear. Magic is not about intrinsic cause and effect. It's about some kind of extra cause and effect, or extra cause, I should say, that affects something that we cannot understand or control or reduplicate ourselves. And in all of this, he is attempting to claim by implied messages that sin, eating the fruit, disobeying God, will not hurt you and surely won't kill you. And what the the extension of that as we follow through history is that before long when people started dying, he claimed that God or the gods was the one who killed them. 
instead of there being intrinsic and inevitable consequences of death, God arbitrarily would take human life in punishment. This is, this is very important to know that this all started with the serpent in the Garden of Eden because you will not surely die. Opened up a huge can of worms. God never said, in the day that you eat of the tree, I will surely kill you. That would be a different Hebrew verb. Instead, he said, you will surely die. And it sounded like, oh, the tree would kill me. And the fruit from the tree would kill me. But that isn't what God knew would happen. He knew that ingesting the lies that would lead to eating the fruit would be what would start us down the path toward death. So let's unpack this a little bit more. The Babylonians searched for immortality. We have stories about that quest. Gilgamesh tries to find the Babylonian Noah to try to get the secret of immortality because he understands the gods have given more immortality to him. Etana goes to heaven because he wants immortality. And the way to get immortality for humans was to have an heir, and he didn't have an heir. Adapa uh, breaks the wing of the south wind in the Persian Gulf and uh, sends a drought as a result. And so he's sent to answer for his deed to the gods, and they offer him the food of water, food and water of life. And he's been told by Inki, don't do that, that's not good for you. And so he, re- he rejects it and they laugh at him because now he can't be immortal. And the question scholars can't answer is, was this a joke? Was that really the bread and water of life? Or was Inky right that he would die? And we don't know. It's ambigu- ambiguous. But Genesis 3 is not ambiguous unless we read it through the serpent's eyes. God has been very clear. He is not talking about two options. It is about a life and death matter. And God is not secret either, but transparent. And neither is he the cause of death in the story. And unlike the Babylonian gods, the Yahweh God of Genesis 3 did not fate death upon humanity, they did have a choice not to listen to the serpent. Let's try application. By claiming that sin was not lethal, the serpent challenged the intrinsic laws of cause and effect by which God governed the universe. He led us to abandon reasoning from cause to effect. God became lethal, meeting out arbitrarily the death penalty for sin. And the problem for humankind became God and his mood and attitude toward us rather than sin and its intrinsic consequences. See how the serpent leans that way so that we actually change the way we view reality. He tore down God's trustworthiness and led us to distrust him, thus breaking our relationship with him. The serpent tells the woman that if she will eat of the fruit, her eyes will be opened and she will be like God. That is, the fruit has magical power to make the woman not just like God, but by implication equal to God. Thus, to take the place of intrinsic consequences to breaking God's cause and effect laws, the serpent appeals to magic, the invocation of supernatural forces to contrive what cannot be obtained through intrinsic or inherent cause-effect relationships. This has a huge effect on our own relationships to other people and to God. Because if we are constantly viewing reality through a lens of something arbitrary and contrived, which magic is, by its very nature, we are in danger of of becoming 
unable to own our own stuff in a relationship when we've messed up. And that is always what harms relationships most. And it has messed up our relationship with God. Because if we blame Him as the one we have to fear and the one we have to appease and the one, the one who uh, is angry with us, it's going to change completely the contours of our relationship. Instead of going to Him and admitting, I've sinned, please forgive me, please heal me. You've seen the cartoon, it's a lovely little cartoon where, and I can't remember the exact wording, maybe some of you have it memorized better than I do, but um, there's uh, like two different pictures of God. I've sinned, I'm terrible, Um, God's going to get me. And the next picture, I've sinned, I think I need to talk to my father. So what this could ultimately lead to is the belief that there is no cause, inherent cause-effect relationships, that everything is contrived and artificially manufactured and malleable. That is able to be manipulated. We could then lead false, disingenuous lives marked by hypocrisy and duplicity. You can only think of fake news. And have you heard of deep fakes? That's scary. For those of you who don't know what deep fakes are, someone takes a YouTube video of someone else and, well, maybe manufactures their own or takes a picture of someone else and has them saying things that someone else said that gets them in huge trouble. Those are deep fakes. Those are the innocent ones. Mm-hmm. But in reality, less stark kinds of arbitrary, contrived relationships exist on every level of society. This may sound like bad news, but relying on social media as a substitute for face-to-face communication. (laughs) Studies have shown that there's more anxiety, depression, aloneness, loneliness because of this. And uh, I teach a freshman class at PUC. It's required of all freshmen now. It's a new class. We just taught it for the first time last year. And in my classes, I'm going to be teaching two of them this year, two sections. In my classes, they have to take two Sabbaths from Friday evening to Sabbath evening, sunset, and stay off social media. In fact, all digital media. Two yeah, and Sabbaths? that's about... that's two old Sabbaths? Yes, and that, that is about the way they react when I tell them. <laughs> no one that the enrollment's down at <laughs> <laughs> I hope it actually is being completely And and after after it's over, they have to handwrite a response of how it affected them answering specific questions. And as those answers rolled in last year, I was amazed how they all said the same things. I slept better that night. I uh, was less anxious. I wasn't worried about what other people think about me. And on and on. Welcome to the 1980s. Yeah. <laughs> so that's where our world is heading, is, is to fracture relationships and to make them artificial and contrived. One of the contests between God and the serpent centered on freedom. To the serpent, and this is very, very current. I get this kind of language from my students a lot. And it's rampant in our world. To the serpent, freedom meant equally inviolable options. So you have your belief system, and I have my belief system, and that's okay. Well, I'm going to accept you the way you are for your belief system regardless, but, but there aren't just all kinds of options out there with no consequences. So one to the serpent, one could eat from the tree of knowledge or not eat from it and be equally viable. And it made no difference. But to God, the two choices consisted of freedom and not freedom. If you die, you're no longer free. So I don't think any loving parent would ever say to their small children, 
you may or may not choose to touch the hot stove. Or you have two equally optional choices. Not to run in front of moving cars or to run in front of moving cars. To God, the tree of knowledge was the tree of death in opposition to the tree of life. To choose death is to reject freedom. This is not optional. So as a, a recap, the serpent effectively tricked the woman and the man into thinking that God was arbitrary, unreasonable, restrictive, rigid, and even harsh. Eventually, lies would follow, other lies would follow, making God out to be angry, retaliatory, revengeful, unloving, and severe. It would take the life and death of Jesus to set the record straight about God's character. And here's what we'll talk about tomorrow night. Meanwhile, ancient Mesopotamians would invent three models that opposed the models of creation of nature, family, and Sabbath that God created us to live with. We'll be discussing and unpacking those three models and their implications for our relationships with others and with God tomorrow night. All right, now's the time to talk back, to ask questions. What kind of response, what kind of questions, what kind of thoughts do you have that you'd like to, to bounce off our, our teacher tonight? Yes. And speak very loud, please. In reference to magic, wasn't there a supernatural power that Satan could give to anybody who chose, he chose to give to? Well, it raises the question about who's behind the magic. Yeah, well, it's, it seems that the saint, the serpent who understood this principle so well. Because it said that you need to imagine yourself on a higher plane. Yeah. Magic, magic gives you knowledge you would not otherwise have. So it does put you on a higher plane. And according to the serpent, it's going to be on the plane of God. Yes, Victoria. Um, when you were talking about uh, the deities looking at the sky, that's like astronomy, I mean astrology. Right. Uh, um, actually, it's divination. They use the signs in the heavens. See, the Babylonians believed that the gods were capable of communicating with them through signs. Babylonian signs meant divination and reading omens. And so... They believed that if there was an eclipse of the sun or the moon, that meant something bad was going to happen. And with the eclipse, uh, usually the bad thing happened to the king. The king would be destroyed. That's, that was their view. I don't think it usually happened. But it led to a ritual that we'll be talking about on Friday evening, where if there was an eclipse and there were other omens that suggested that the king would be put to death, that the gods were giving this verdict, they would try to get out of it by giving the gods what they wanted legally. This is called virtual reality. Instead of giving him the gods the king, executing the king, they would put a substitute king, maybe the gardener of the palace. That was one of the times that they did this. They would put a substitute king on the throne, and he would rule for an X amount of number of days at one time it was a hundred. He would rule that long. And at the end of those days, they would bring the real king back in, have a banquet, and they would take the substitute king and his wife out and execute them. You see, the gods wanted the king. They had this verdict against the king, and they gave him the king. So the way to deal with manipulative gods is it's, to be manipulative. Exactly. Exactly. Um, can we compare uh, Satan's approach to the woman with Satan's approach to Jesus in the wilderness? That is, I think we can. I've never done that. But what I have done is 
discovered that Satan's approach to Jesus in the wilderness, yes, it is along the same lines, but it's distinctly very Babylonian. I'll give you a little heads up on tomorrow evening. The three models of the Babylonians, actually, when, remember, remember that when I use the word Babylonians, I mean Assyro-Babylonians, I mean Mesopotamians, because that seems to be how the Bible seems to put all these in, in one basket, especially at Revelation. But the three models are economics. If you are the Son of God, turn this, this stones into bread. That's an economic demand. Law, or legal relationships, I, I prefer actually contractual relationships, but it led to a kind of law as verdicts. Jesus being ordered to jump off the temple in defiance of God's laws of intrinsic consequences is an attack on that. It's, it's actually trying to lead him to the Babylonian way of doing law. And then, you fall down and worship me, I will give you all these kingdoms of the world, I will make you supreme. Kingship, or hierarchy, is the last Babylonian model. So that's tomorrow night. But, but those three temptations parallel. And in Matthew's Gospel, they parallel in the same order that I... No, in, in, in um, Luke's Gospel, I think they parallel the same order that I used. What were the three models that you were saying God gave, and did they relate specifically to these, family and... They're not... They're, they're, you, can, you can show the opposites through almost every one, all of them. All of them, uh, all of them, all of God's models oppose economics. All of God's models oppose uh, kingship, and all of God's models oppose what were those, those contractual relationships. Nature, family, and Sabbath. Um, is that is that a hand up? All right. Um, not maybe it's a juvenile. It, it, it seems like the resurgence of, of Marvel and the comics and all these supernatural magic type things is that is that something parallel or? Well, it's an extension of this artificial when. When we become increasingly artificial in our constructs and our thinking, we can accept anything artificial and we just keep moving and moving out farther and farther away from intrinsic relationships until finally we nearly come to self-end. Which you kind of see in a lot of films, it seems like there's just a lot of supernatural support. Anybody else? Questions, thoughts, probings? Yes. Oh. I'll ask my wife a question. Let my wife ask a question. Go ahead. What question did I ask? You, 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 you've flummoxed uh, um, me. I'm, I'm, uh, he can't fly. Give him a break. Okay, go ahead, dear. Would you like to marry me, though? Been there, done that. So then, miracles. How, is that intrinsic, or is that... I mean, how do we deal with that now? Miracles that occur. Um, versus that's that's that? been a discussion about magic. Is our ma- miracles magic? And my answer to that really is to go to patriarchs and prophets, where Ellen suggests that when God does certain things, certain actions, he inter he he counters one natural law by introducing another. So he's not just magically doing this in a contrived sort of way. It still fits within the natural order of things. So then the text, we don't wrestle with flesh and blood or principalities. How does that come into all of this? Well, the principalities and powers are behind magic, aren't they? Yeah. And, and we're, we're certainly wrestling with them, I think, in all the things we've been discussing tonight about artificial relationships and me- and movies and media and back there again. Good chance to discuss this part, but why did God curse the serpent? As though he were a moral being. And the snake is the snake. It's the same reason I suppose that you stone an ox for goring a man. 
we think of it as as different than biblical would think, but they held the ox morally culpable, apparently. It's 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 it isn't because they saw the being necessarily as able to be a moral being. It is because they did something immoral, and you judge them by their actions. Exactly. That's how our, how we reason that. Yeah. Back there by the pole. You had your hand up a little bit ago. Well, here you go. I just had the thought. I don't know if I can put words on If you think about parenting and children. Uh, we're to train up our child the way it should go and the way it's old and won't depart from it. And there's consequences to actions and children are given choices. And so if you get the child as they grow up more and more, you begin to let them have more choice, more freedom in other words. And it's interesting to think about it because the whole world is warped. And you've got this child being raised in this warped world, and it's the parents of the God-fearing home brings up the child in the way she go. It's very interesting, because what the, the parent, what you're telling us tonight is the parent should have this knowledge of the consequences. Yes? Mm-hmm. It would grow up the child in the right way if they use those understanding rules to help the child grow. I think it's, it's very important that parents explain uh, to the best of their ability to children about the nature of the intrinsic consequences to doing things. Victoria. Yes, um, you said something about uh, about the serpent reading Eve's mind, or he appears to read her mind in the Garden of Eden. <laughs> and I'm asking you now: Can Satan read our mind? Well, he certainly, no, he can't directly read our minds, but he can certainly tell something by our actions and our words. We give ourselves away a lot. (laughs) Yes? Um, I have a question about the substantive nature of the forbidden fruit um, as it relates to the effect of its partaking. And you uh, mentioned or alluded to the ascription of the causality of sin on God. But what we, um, what I'm hearing you imply is that it is a natural, the, the, the substantive change within the nature of Adam and Eve by being shameful and naked and knowing it was as a consequence of partaking of the fruit rather than a physical nature of the fruit. Is that fair to say? It's a consequence of distrusting God. The, the root of the, the root cause of the disobedience is we no longer trust God. The serpent has opened our eyes, and, and now we see he's not the kind of person we thought he was. And so to follow up, God removed the robe of life from them. As a well, we talked about yeah, we talked about last night in terms of removing the robe of light. That possibly the light that God said, "Let there be light," is actually about God's own glory. His own light, that he shed that on the world and it probably enveloped Adam and Eve. Yeah, so the, the rest of that thought is then immediately when they distrusted God, somehow his presence was. Well, when you distrust someone, their, their ability to affect you is limited, isn't it? And, and so I think what I want to follow up and say God as an omniscient being, witnessed this deception Mm -hmm. and immediately noticed Adam's partaking Mm -hmm. and then the effect of that See, See, it seems that God comes to visit them like he did every night and and, uh, they run from him and hide. But but the question that God asked, um, where are you, Um, who told you, it implies that God was absent of the dialogue, but I'm, I'm supposing and submitting that God was not absent from the dialogue, right. and witnessed and understood, and perhaps even... Yes, I believe God was definitely a witness to the dialogue, and when he came and asked, where are you, he wasn't, he, it wasn't because he didn't know where they were. No. Okay, back here. 
you know, in the book of Daniel, he saved uh, the wise men. I always wondered if that was an opportunity. So, <coughs> Jesus tried to save each one of us has an opportunity to be salvation. Daniel saved the wise men. They had an opportunity to, you know, experience life. And then you go down to the centuries and it was the Magi who recognized Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what I'm saying here. Sounds like you're connecting dots. <laughs> but I was always surprised that the answer was to let the people kill off the wise men. No. Yeah. You know, because of the evil mm-hmm. sorceries. But he saves them. And then we know if you go all, all the way down, their children, their children, their children, then we have the Zanjan who are looking for mm-hmm. them. And they used they used omens. Yeah. They saw this amazing omen in the sky. And, and a combination with scripture. Before that, when you read, I mean, they had read Daniel's prophecies. They were looking, they got the star, but they were already looking for the Messiah because they read Daniel's prophecies. See, see, gods, the gods of Babylon were always about kind of secretly giving omens to only the select few that could read them. But God puts his almond in the sky, lets these three wise men see it, and they read about the prophecies, or have read already about the prophecies, and then they go and they find the wise men and then spread it to Herod and probably a lot of other people. So God is about revelation, and that's one of the things that we will find when we talk about the Sabbath as a sign versus the Babylonian evil days. Uh, we will come to understand that the signs of God are always about revealing and transforming. The Sabbath is a sign of transformation. Well, well God always knew that this was going to happen originally, right? That he was going to partake of the fruit. Because in Genesis 3.1, when it says that the snake was sneakier than any of the other wild animals implicating that basically all the animals were sneaky, but the snake was sneakier. <laughs> <laughs> and, that, and that the snake had, you know, was able to roam freely throughout the fly or whatever because God didn't curse it until after it happened and it go to its stomachs. And so um, God had to have uh, had this already planned in, in my thinking uh, according to this because and the snake could have even had heard the conversation between Eve and God when God gave the instructions, do and, and do not eat of this fruit. So, I don't know where I'm leading with that question, except for the fact that God had, had the, already had this known prior to this point. Mm-hmm. To make the snake sneakier than all the rest of the animals... Um, <laughs> the word the word actually means clever, crafty, clever. My uh, sister has been waiting, so I'm. This is not nepotism. This is actually fairness. This is my sister here. Just a quick one, sort of relate to that is I, I have always wondered what what the actual tree of knowledge of good and evil is. What is that actually? Like obviously, God, like she said, He knew the end of being. He knew what Eve was going to say. He knew what Adam was going to say. He knew all that. So it seems like it was a setup, a mechanism for ferreting out this cross. Yeah. It it seems it seems like a setup when God foreknows something, doesn't it? Well, no, I don't really believe that. Just because you know something's going to happen before it happens doesn't mean that people don't have great control. But if you set this up knowing that, it makes it a problem, doesn't it? Well, maybe, unless you know that this is the, the best option. This is the best play in the big fat chess game. Okay. Right. Okay. Um, so, what I think we have to realize is that God is more important it's more important to God that Adam and Eve be put in a situation where they have to choose more important man 
more important than eliminating the choice. More important than them choosing correctly. Yes. More important than them choosing correctly. Did I see your hand again back there? Someone? I thought I saw someone over there. Okay. And then you. Well, it's related, and, and as I said, in the ancient Near East, magic is is related to witchcraft. So spiritualism today, having to do a superstition, you know, all that stuff, it's going to be the it's going to come, I think, in many forms that surprise us. So I, I think we're, we need to be cautious lest we assume we know what it is and we can stay away from it. I think it's going to surprise us how many forms the wily serpent can develop. Group, is it, a, is it fair if I ask a question? Yes. Okay, thank you so much. I, I, thought, I thought you were kind people, decent people, really. Uh, so, when I am... Um, teaching about this, I'm, I'm wanting to check myself here. When I'm teaching about this, I teach that um, by all rights, you know, the whole thing about in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Um, I teach that by all rights, having morally, relationally separated themselves from the source of life, without grace, they should have dropped dead. Yeah. Is that... I, I think that's I think that's fair to say. I don't know mm-hmm. if we can say absent, but at least it's fair to say. Yeah, I, but I, something did die. Because because when I was growing up, of course, they taught us. Well, they spiritually died on that day, which, or they began to die, or they began to die, as you said. You said they began to die. The death process started, which has always sounded like. An explanation that demands an explanation. Yeah, we we tried to make it sound rational. So I think of, like, if a light bulb had the ability to unplug itself, it wouldn't be being punished by going out. No. It just, that's what happens. So that's fair. I I wanted to check that, and thank you. I feel stronger now. Not to throw a monkey wrench in this, but you know... If you really think about it, the Bible says one day was the Lord is as a thousand years. And if you go back to Adam, how old was he when he died? No one in all of mankind is going to pass a thousand years. If you look at it in that way, it does have some... Yeah. I think that that has merit myself. The nature of the day is a thousand years. I don't believe is being given as a formula, but that is interesting. In humankind, no one does pass a thousand years. Right. Bruce. You might have more insight into this than I, but um, one author that I read talking about that statement in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die, that phrase, you shall surely die, they said was a judicial statement. In other words, it is a, a, a like the death penalty statement. And, and But the Hebrew doesn't read as, it, it doesn't read that he will put them to death. No, and I'm not saying that he will put them to death, but in the, sen- in, in the sense that this author was making the case that, that meant they were, they were, Guilty and under condemnation, you know, like a, the the death penalty. That that it doesn't necessarily turn out that they would have to die at that time, but but they were morally culpable and therefore guilty of. You know, they would be put to death you know, you can you can read it as a judicial situation where God is coming to render a verdict. You can view it that way. Well, this is you can prior, eat- This is prior to anything. I mean, it's the statement in advance. If oh, the this, statement in advance if in the day you, the tree, you, know, you, will, you be, will surely die. You will be under penalty of death. Because I think that death is intrinsic, I have a hard time seeing it as a, as a statement of condemnation. And, and I was, I'm sure, I mean, Why would you condemn a person before they even did it? He's, in some ways, you can see it as a warning yeah. about something that really will happen. Well, and again, I've, I've wrestled with that, so I was curious if you had any more specific insights on the language used. This illustrates to me something that is is very, very important, that the more we blame God for what the consequences that sin brings, the more we distance ourselves from the reality of what sin does. I'm going to have to 
I'm going to have to I'm going to have to move the discussion into unofficial time, and so we are going to close the meeting, and then you are we are going to keep the tent lit um, for a while, and discussions and questions can still happen. So, but I'm going to ask you to please say a prayer for us again about what what you what you sense that God wants to do for us today. Gracious Father. We haven't come to the end of the story yet, but we know that out of the mess that we have made in our artificial contrived relationships, that you have brought a record-breaking change by revealing the Father to us. So in our exploration as we continue, we pray that we may not lose sight of this awesome gift of Jesus to this world to restore relationships to their original plan of love and trust. We thank you for this in his name. Amen. Amen.